Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 47, Last Gasp at the Mataris. Last time, we covered the revolving fortunes of Rome and Carthage in Italy during the long years after Cannae. In a bewildering saga of skirmishes and sieges, coups and counter-coups, Hannibal and Roman consuls fought a bitter contest for the hearts and minds of the Italian communities. Even so, the scales tipped ever more in Rome's favor. Today, we cover Hannibal's last real chance to turn the tide. The emergence of his brother Hasdrubal from the Alps at the head of a new Carthaginian army. As we remember from episode 44, Scipio drove Hasdrubal Barca out of Spain with a crushing victory at the Battle of Bayacula. Hasdrubal himself, however, avoided capture, and marching north, he recruited more mercenaries from the wild Celtiberians before setting off on the long-delayed journey to join his brother. Slipping through the western end of the Pyrenees and avoiding the Romans in Catalonia, Hasdrubal found improved prospects in Gaul. Here, Carthaginian garrisons and friendly Gallic tribes had held Hannibal's old road open for nearly a decade, enabling Hasdrubal to have a much easier crossing than his elder brother had. His passage through the Alps was similarly swift, whether due to the fact he took an easier route, or whether he used the infrastructure and alliances Hannibal had left behind, we cannot say but he arrived in the Po Valley with his army swelled by enthusiastic Gallic tribesmen. Hasdrubal's sudden arrival came at an inopportune time for the Romans. Hannibal still lurked in southern Italy, the Etruscans were on the edge of revolt, and two consuls had been slain in 208 BC, including Marcellus, the legendary captor of Syracuse, who was killed along with his co-consul in an ambush during a scouting expedition. To compound the dangers, the Latins, those allies closest to Rome by blood and treaty, began to signal their weariness of the war. No less than 12 of the 30 Roman colonies refused to send their quota of money and troops for the year, a declaration which the Senate received in stark silence. The losses in life and treasure had been enormous. By 207 BC, the number of Roman citizens had dropped from approximately 270,000 to 137,000, and many might have felt that even Rome's resources had their limits. Besides these practical concerns, a litany of momentous prodigies worked on the Romans' already overwrought nerves. Showers of stones fell at Veii, temples were struck by lightning, a wolf stole into the city of Capua and savaged a sentry. And at Frosino, a hermaphrodite child was born the size of a four-year-old. The diviners decreed that the baby should be banished from Rome without touching the earth, whereupon the unfortunate infant was placed in a box and cast into the sea. Rites, rituals, and sacrifices were commissioned to propitiate the gods, specifically Juno, traditionally viewed as analogous with the Carthaginian Tenet-slash-Astarte, and thus hostile to the Romans. After all this, if Hannibal received a fresh influx of troops from his brother, a compromised peace might be back on the table. In this moment of crisis, the Senate turned to one Gaius Claudius Nero, not to be confused with the Emperor Nero who would follow 250 years later. 
We have met Nero briefly before, when he was dispatched to Spain following the deaths of the Scipio brothers, and then hastily recalled. According to Livy, Nero was, quote, in the Senate's opinion, a man of outstanding ability, but of too quick and fiery a temperament to deal with the present situation. It was felt that a nature as impulsive as his ought to be tempered by the collaboration of a more cautious and prudent colleague, end quote. The colleague the senators chose could not differ more from the young, dashing Nero. Marcus Livius, surnamed Salinator, meaning salt merchant for his later support of a salt tax, had served as consul once before in a war against the Illyrians in 219 BC. Following the conclusion of that conflict, he was tried, along with Lucius Aemilius Paulus, the same who had perished at Cannae, for dishonesty in distributing the war spoils. Although Paulus escaped censure, Livius had been convicted and retired from public life in shame, dressed in mourning and allowing his hair to grow long. Upon his return to Rome, his appearance caused a scandal among the censors, who were Roman government officers in charge of public morality, among other matters, who forced him to shave and wear the toga befitting his rank. This change of outward raiment did not alter the old senator's sour outlook on life, and he continued to protest vigorously any time the state had need of his services. Now, appointed to the consulship, he and Nero would serve as an unlikely duo to counter the onrushing invasion from the north. Hasdrubal's rapid descent into Italy surprised not only the Romans, but also his brother. Remembering his own arduous trek over the Alps ten years before, Hannibal did not believe Hasdrubal could arrive before mid to late summer. Thus he remained for precious weeks in southern Italy, awaiting events. For his part, Hasdrubal simultaneously squandered away much of his advantage in a fruitless siege of Placentia. Having failed to take the city, he belatedly marched south to join up with his elder brother. According to Livy, the Roman mood was grim. Despite their recent successes in Spain and Sicily, many feared the turning of fortune's wheel, for, quote, now they had two wars on their hands, actually in Italy. Two famous military leaders stood one on each side of Rome, and the whole massive weight of the Carthaginian menace was concentrated upon one point, end quote. One mistake by either Livius, who now faced Hasdrubal, or Nero, who confronted Hannibal, would allow all of Carthage's might and genius to be united for the first time in the war. Fate, however, would once again intervene in Rome's favor. Hasdrubal had yet to make contact with his brother after crossing the Alps, so now he dispatched messengers to Hannibal, proposing a juncture in central Italy. As they tailed Hannibal's column, the messengers fell into the hands of a Roman patrol near Tarentum, and upon being thoroughly questioned, revealed Hasdrubal's letter. Apprised of his enemy's plans, Nero determined on an almost reckless course to counter them. No longer would he stay in Apulia, as the Senate had ordered, trying to pin Hannibal down with skirmishes and feints. Instead, he would take the best of his troops, 6,000 foot and 1,000 horse, and march 250 miles to join with Livius and destroy Hasdrubal before Hannibal realized he had left. 
A fraction of his forces would remain behind, as a screen to disguise his departure. Orders were sent to farmers, villages, and towns along the road to provide food and transport for the soldiers. Then, having started a rumor that he intended to attack Hannibal's allies in Lucania, he marched north. When news reached Rome of Nero's audacious and unprecedented decision, the city feared the worst. The possibilities for disaster surrounded them on all sides. What if the letter was a treacherous, punic trick designed to lure the impetuous Nero from his camp? What if Hannibal realized that only a portion of the army remained to face him and broke out from Apulia? What if he should ambush Nero along the way? What if he even marched on Rome once again? Nero had advised the Senate to look after their own defenses, hazarding all on what was either a brilliant stroke or a fatal error. Only the outcome would justify or condemn his choice. Like an announcer introducing two prizefighters, Livy ups the stakes in his narrative description, saying of the Carthaginians that, quote, Now there were two simultaneous wars, two vast armies, almost one might say two Hannibals. For was not Hasdrubal also Hamilcar's son, as active a leader as his brother, trained by years of warfare in Spain against Roman troops, and famous for a double victory in the destruction of two armies and the death of two of Rome's finest generals? In the rapidity of his march from Spain, and success in calling the Gallic tribes to arms, he had much more even than Hannibal to boast of. Fear, in short, looks always on the darker side, and everyone believed his enemy's strength to be greater, and their own less, than in fact they were. End quote. For the Romans' part, Livy reports that, once he had gained a safe distance from Hannibal, Nero halted and briefly addressed his troops, explaining that what might seem reckless to their eyes was actually the best road to success. When combined with Livius, they would achieve local superiority, bringing the Roman army to 37,000 men against Hasdrubal's 30,000. And when they crushed him, the glory would belong to Nero's men, not Livius's. For, he concluded, quote, everyone forgets the water in the bucket and imagines it is the last drop that makes it overflow, End quote. As his troops made their way along the road, Nero's march began to resemble more of a triumphal procession than a forced march. According to Livy, quote, every road they traversed was lined with men and women who had come pouring from the farms. Vows and prayers and praises met them from every side. They were hailed as their country's defenders, as champions of the city and imperial power of Rome. Men cried out as they passed that the safety and freedom of themselves and their children depended upon their swords. They prayed all the gods and goddesses to grant them fair fortune on the march, a successful fight, and a speedy victory. Then came invitations, offers, importunate requests to the troops to take what they needed for themselves or their animals, each man competing with the rest to be the giver. With the utmost generosity, everything was heaped upon them. End quote. The soldiers themselves ate as they marched, never leaving the ranks or loitering, and hardly resting enough for their physical needs. They marched with nothing but their weapons, but they suffered no lack. And in fact, their numbers swelled as they went. For old veterans who had served their time took up their swords once again and joined the ranks while used enthusiastically enlisted under the standards. In his description, 
Livy paints a compelling scene which transcends the mere march of one Roman general. It signified the march of Rome, of a proud and heroic people rising to meet their destiny. In this exalted mood, Nero and his soldiers made the 250-mile march in seven days. Entering Livius's camp at nightfall, Nero had the first of many quarrels with his more cautious colleague. Having stalled Hasdrubal using Fabian delaying tactics, Livius was loath to commit to a full-scale battle, even with Nero's veteran reinforcements. At least, he argued, Nero and his men should rest for a few days after their ordeal. Furious, Nero demanded that the trumpet be sounded for battle. Quote, Speed and speed alone has made this move certain of success. Delay now will turn it into a mere reckless adventure. End quote. If the Romans struck now, they could destroy Hasdrubal before either he or Hannibal knew that a switch had occurred. Nero's force of argument won the day, and the following morning, the legionaries marshaled for battle. Too late did Hasdrubal realize that he now faced two armies instead of one. When scouting the enemy, he saw some old shields which he did not recognize from the day before. And when he learned that two trumpets had sounded in the Roman camp, he knew that both consuls were present. Fearing to face a superior foe, Hasdrubal sounded the retreat. Passing along the Mataris River, he ordered his guides to lead his men to a navigable ford. In the confusion which followed, though, the guides deserted him, leaving the Carthaginians to grope blindly along the riverbank, seeking a place to cross. The appearance of Nero with his cavalry and Livius with the light troops prevented an abortive attempt at fortifying a camp. Having exhausted all his options, Hasdrubal reluctantly turned to face the oncoming Romans by the banks of the Mataris. He deployed his Gallic allies on his left flank, those who were sober at least, for many had deserted or gotten drunk the night before. The Gallic flank was anchored by a line of broken hills, preventing the Roman right wing from attacking them all at once. The Ligurians and ten elephants held the center. Hasdrubal himself took up his post on the right flank with his veteran Spanish troops. For the Roman side, Nero took the right flank facing the Gauls, Livius held the left facing Hasdrubal, while a subordinate commanded the center against the Ligurians. The battle began with a clash between the detachments commanded by Hasdrubal and Livius. According to Livy, quote, There now began a bloody conflict. There were the two commanders-in-chief, the greater part of the Roman foot and Roman horse. There were the veteran Spaniards, wise in the ways of Roman warfare and the tough fighters of Liguria, end quote. An elephant charge drove the Roman standards back, but as the fighting grew more vicious and the animals found themselves pinned between the armies, they, quote, got out of control, charging this way and that like rudderless ships between the two lines, as if they did not know to which army they belonged, end quote. Indeed, Livy reports that six of the ten elephants were killed by their own riders instead of the enemy. For when the animals became ungovernable, the riders drove a chisel through their necks with a heavy blow from a hammer. Interestingly, he also notes that Hasdrubal was the first to come up with this ingenious insurance policy against elephant stampedes, but it would not help him now. 
Seeing the bitter fighting on the Roman left flank, and unable to make headway against the Gauls due to the intervening hills, Nero once again showed his decisiveness of action. Leaving a small screen to contain the Gauls, who, according to a dismissive Livy, quote, always lack the stamina to fight very hard, end quote, Nero quickly shifted behind his own lines to the Roman left flank, coming down behind the veteran Spaniards before either side realized what had happened. Until then, the contest had remained in doubt, but now, surrounded and beaten down on all sides, the Carthaginian lines began to break. As Drubal remained with his veterans throughout the bitter fighting, and his end was reminiscent of his barked father. Quote, Hasdrubal's fame rests upon many exploits, but more than all upon his conduct in this last battle. It was he who kept his men going with words of encouragement, sharing their perils. He who rekindled the courage of the weary and faint-hearted, cursing their slackness or entreating them to rally. He who called back the fugitives to the colors again and again, forcing them to fight on. When at last no doubt remained that the day was lost, he refused to survive the great army which had followed his fame, and setting spurs to his horse, galloped straight into the midst of a Roman cohort. There, still fighting, he found a death worthy of his father Hamilcar and his brother Hannibal. End quote. So died Hasdrubal in Carthage's last gasp attempt to end the war in Italy. Rome's victory was complete. According to Polybius, whose numbers seem more reliable than Livy's, she had lost 2,000 men, but Carthage had 15,400 casualties, 10,000 dead, and 5,400 captured, along with the four surviving elephants. Included among the dead were obviously Hasdrubal, as well as other senior Carthaginian officers, crippling any hopes that even a shadow of the great army could be rebuilt. Nero did not rest on his laurels. After sending news to the Senate, he rapidly returned to Apulia to resume his blockade of Hannibal. He did not come empty-handed, however. The following day, Hasdrubal's severed head was flung into the Carthaginian camp, giving Hannibal the first news of his brother's defeat. Under the double blow, Hannibal is said to have exclaimed, quote, Now at last, I see that the destiny of Carthage is plain. End quote. Whether this statement is a rhetorical flourish of Livy's or an actual quote, the fact remains that the Battle of the Mataris is one of the most pivotal battles of the Second Punic War. Sir Edmund Shepherd Creasy ranks it, and no other battle in the Punic Wars, as belonging in his The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. Theodore Aurelit Dodge describes Nero's rapid redeployment in the north as, quote, the finest strategic feat of the Romans during the entire war, as well as one of the exceptional marches in history, end quote. Despite being overshadowed by the glowing names of Trebia, Trasimene, Cannae, and yes, the coming Zama, it ranks equally with them in practical importance. The what-ifs are endless if Hasdrubal and Hannibal had effected a juncture in Italy. Could they have reversed the tide? What if Nero's gamble had failed? What if Hasdrubal had not wasted precious time besieging Placentia? What if his messengers had gotten through? We will never know what might have happened. As for Livius and Nero, both shared a joint triumph on their return to Rome. 
Although the Senate permitted Livius to ride in the customary four-horse chariot, Nero had to be content with riding on horseback unattended, a result which increased rather than diminished his glory, since he had arguably done the most to win the battle. They both would go on to serve as censors after the war, and their quarreling would continue. At one point, they even tried to demote their colleague and force the other to sell his horse as punishment for past personal wrongs. Despite this subsequent squabbling, both men could forever lay claim to their great victory at the Mataris. Gaius Claudius Nero particularly was memorialized in monuments and poetry as one of the great heroes of Rome throughout her later history, which renders it all the more unfortunate that, as Lord Byron notes, his story has come to be overshadowed by his infamous namesake, who would follow centuries later. With the defeat at the Mataris, Hannibal withdrew into Brutium, the furthest corner of Italy. Here he would remain, too strong to be defeated openly, but too weak to effectuate anything of substance, hoping against hope that some miracle would save him. But none would be forthcoming. Next time, we will cover Scipio's return to Italy and his audacious proposal to end the interminable Second Punic War. Until then, take care and read more history.